Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This is the third in a series of online panel discussions on COVID-19 and the future of the New Zealand economy. In this session, the panellists discuss long-term recovery strategies, including what it means for the climate change response, the impact on health and well-being, and how it might change how we think about disasters in the future. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the third in our series of Victoria University Spotlight Lectures. We're looking at the impact that the COVID crisis has had on the New Zealand economy. And this week, we're going to be talking about how not to waste a good crisis. I'm Professor Alan Bollard. I'm from the Wellington School of Business and Government at Victoria University. I'll be moderating today. And it's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. So we have with us Dr. Carolyn Palmer. Carolyn is Director of Public Sector Management at Treasury, that includes the health functions there. And she's a Victoria University PhD alumnus, uh, having written a thesis on recovery from disasters. We have Dr. Judy Lawrence, who is Senior Research Fellow at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute at Victoria University. She's also a Commissioner of the New Zealand Climate Change Commission, and she's coordinating lead author for the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report. Carolyn and Judy emphasise they're expressing their personal views this afternoon. And we also welcome Nicholas Ager, Professor of Ethics in the philosophy department at Victoria University as well. So welcome to our panelists. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started this series off. We started talking about short-term economic responses to COVID and things have moved on from there. And we've learned quite a bit more in that very short space of time as well. In the second week, we talked about how to handle the economic recovery. We'd had the budget by then. This week, we're talking about longer term implications of the COVID experience. Winston Churchill is alleged to have said in the Yalta conference, you should never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, the Yalta conference probably sentenced a very large part of Eastern Europe population to very unfortunate conditions for the next 40 years. But those faced with real crisis do think about how we can make it work, but at the same time, it's often very difficult to think about the short term. So how does the COVID experience affect how we think about the future in all of this? Carolyn, can we start with you? You've been thinking about broad impacts on economy and on people from this sort of crisis. What's your frame for thinking about this? Does the wellbeing framework help in all of this? So Carolyn. How do you feel about this? Thanks, Alan. I'm going to um, structure my initial um, introductory comments using the living standards framework. So for those who haven't come across it before, this is the model that informs Treasury's economic and fiscal advice to the government. It's a way of thinking about and measuring current well-being. So it covers things like income and employment, but also a much broader range of factors, thinking about cultural identity, the environment, health and housing, for example. It's also a way of thinking about the impact or indicators of future well-being 
and it does this um, thinking about four different capitals. So if we're thinking about the impact of COVID-19 on the future economy or future well-being, that will depend on where people sit at the moment in terms of current well-being, but also the distribution of COVID-19 impacts on the four various capitals. So thinking about financial and physical capital, who's going to pay for the recovery from COVID-19? Is it young or old, consumers or savers? What about the impact of inflation and taxes? It'll depend on the impacts on human capital, so things like health and educational outcomes. And it will depend on social capital. What might COVID-19 mean for key community or government institutions? And finally, environmental capital. What might it mean for things like our climate change response? The impact of COVID-19 on future wellbeing will also depend on how resilient these four capitals are, both for uh, recovery from COVID-19, but also um, how well-placed they might be for future shocks. So I'm going to talk about the first three capitals and then turn to Judy um, and Nick, who are going to um, have some comments about the environment and risk and resilience. So financial and physical capital, who's going to pay for COVID-19 recovery? Well, obviously, we've had large drops in economic activity um, compared to pre-COVID-19 times and calls from many sectors uh, for government assistance. In Budget 2020, two weeks ago, we saw a highly uncertain economic outlook, um, disruptions to the economy and heightened uncertainty likely to continue for uh, at least a while yet. Um, and as a result of that, Budget 2020 pr um, produced alternative scenarios. One thing it did show was economic activity set to record its largest decline on record, and that was based on assumptions around you know, continuing restrictions on activity and limits on people movements. It also picked up on the negative international outlook. For example, the IMF forecasting a decline in global economic activity on a scale not seen since the Great Depression. But it also did show things getting better over time as government expenditure or fiscal policy cushioned the blow from the virus, assisted with recovery, and as restrictions on economic activity ease. So I'm going to talk briefly about what that might mean um, at the government level, but then briefly about individuals and businesses. So in terms of the budget, it showed much higher government expenditure and lower revenue. For example, tax revenue dropping by approximately $50 billion over the forecast period and tax revenues taking three years to return to pre-COVID levels. In terms of government expenditure, the forecast reflected the government's response to COVID-19, so $62 billion of extra expenditure, covering things like the public health response, the cost of the wage subsidy, online resources for schools, and extra funding for houses. So with lower tax revenues and higher government uh, expenditure, that means higher government debt levels and the increased costs of servicing that. For example, the budget showed net debt reaching above 50% in the forecast period and New Zealand government bonds outstanding uh, forecast to almost triple in size. We can also expect to see higher private debt levels. And in combination, these effects mean New Zealand's you know, resilience to deal with further shocks is significantly reduced. Turning to individuals, there'll be impacts on uh, incomes, so much higher levels of unemployment, and the budget forecast unemployment to reach a peak of just under 10% in the September quarter. 
So that means income inequalities may widen between those who remain employed and those who are not, and existing disparities are likely to be exacerbated. Uh, while unemployment levels were low pre-COVID, uh, they were still much higher for those aged under 25, for Maori workers, Pacific workers, and disabled people. There'll be impacts on wealth. It's not clear yet what the competing forces will mean for house prices. So for example, New Zealanders returning uh, from overseas or staying here versus the uh, tourism accommodation returning to the residential tenancy pool. Um, but if house prices follow the path of previous recessions, we can expect to see them fall before stabilizing and then recovering. But what we don't know is the depth of that fall or how long the recovery will take. Um, and we can also expect interest rates to remain low um, and for there to be deflationary pressures from that reduced economic activity. In terms of businesses, we can expect to see increases in firm and personal bankruptcies, um, perhaps an increasing pace of decline in high street stores and people working from home more, which will have uh, flow on impacts to some service sectors like cl commercial cleaning, for example. And we can expect New Zealand to have increased reliance on primary industries for export earnings as other sectors decline. There'll be regional and local distributional impacts. For example, unemployment due to lost tourism is going to be felt more in some regions like Queenstown and Rotorua. And there'll be intergenerational impacts. Superannuation is likely to continue to insulate the elderly while working age people bear the burdens of unemployment. When you're thinking about financial and physical capital, it also makes you think about who's going to pay for COVID-19 recovery in the future. Are we likely to continue to see much higher levels of government debt um, with the increased costs of servicing that? Well, possibly, um, but there is a limit in terms of what international lenders will bear. And it also does reduce our um, ability to respond to future um, shocks. Might it mean cuts in government expenditure in the future? Um, well, I think there's some lessons from the GFC response there where we had um, efficiency dividends and tight restrictions on government expenditure and it led to um, a lack of uh, investment in key infrastructure like IT in government. Um, might it mean you know, higher taxes or new taxes in the future to increase government revenue? Um, well, I think it's useful to look at uh, the tax working group conclusions on the tax system. Um, while we've got broad base taxes in New Zealand, we have a relatively narrow range of taxes with 90% of tax revenue from income tax, company tax and GST. And also our tax system is not particularly progressive. Um, we rely on transfers like working for families rather than having that in our tax system. Yet even when you combine the tax and ta transfer system, uh, income inequality is reduced by less than the OECD average. And I think that's exacerbated by some of the inconsistent treatment of capital income, which primarily benefits the wealthy. Briefly on human capital. So if you think about other impacts outside uh, financial and physical capital, um, things like health impacts over and above COVID-19, well, I think the health system's likely to continue to be under pressure for some time, um, particularly due to the catch-up from deferred elective surgery and the significant social impacts from increased unemployment and chronic stress are likely to mean higher levels of mental health uh, issues, substance abuse and family violence. In terms of thinking about educational impacts of COVID, well obviously an increase in demand for education and training, 
but I also think uh, an impact on student achievement. And those children already at risk of low achievement are likely to be much more affected. So that could mean widening academic achievement gaps and further undermining of social mobility. Finally, in terms of skill gaps, uh, it'll be things like much less ability to access skilled global workforces that we've become more reliant on. So doctors, nurses, and teachers, for example. And some of the increases in un unemployment, I think will persist beyond the recovery period. So things like early retirement or the inability to attach to the labor market at formative um, periods. Finally, just on social capital, what will it mean for key community or government institutions? Well, obviously our global context has changed. Um, multilateral institutions, I think, will continue to weaken. So you've seen that with the U US withdrawal of WHO funding. Global flows of capital and goods will resume, but there'll be much tighter restrictions on the movement of people. And it's likely to mean uh, our trade networks alter. So the ongoing shift towards Asia and away from Europe and the US is likely to accelerate um, if Asia opens its borders first. I think we're likely to see um, financial distress in local government um, with some regions seeking ongoing financial support or regulatory support. But on the positive, some of the COVID-19 responses like better use of IT and data for contract tracing and change delivery models. So remote delivery and primary care may flow into some longer term reforms. And there are opportunities for broader public sector reform, things like better use of data, digital service provision, and perhaps some more agile workforces. I'm gonna turn uh, over to Judy uh, and Nick now. Well, thanks very much, Carolyn, very wide ranging. But you didn't talk about one thing that Judy's going to talk about, which is climate change. And what Judy does, um, our experience with COVID impact, how we're thinking about climate change, any, any more learnings we've had from lockdown and recovery? Yes, certainly. We have tended to think about pandemics as something new and surprising and not happening to us anytime soon. And that's a bit like the way we've been thinking about climate change. It's something out there in the future, but we have been ignoring the signals that we've had. And I went back to look at the World Economic Forum Global Risk Reports that have been coming out the last 13 or 14 years. And extreme weather and the failure of adaptation to climate change have been in the top 10 risks for some considerable time from at least 2014. And that's both in terms of likelihood and impact. But then if you look a bit closer, the code for pandemics have also been hovering in there in the top 10, but largely around eight and 10 in the form of contagious diseases. Now, what these have in common are that they are both global issues and they are about the interconnected world that we live in. And the experience of the pandemic has actually raised quite a lot of interesting issues for how we think about climate change. Both pandemics and climate change are not surprises. They're not these black swans uh, that are talked about. They've been known about for decades and we've somehow blotted them out of our thinking. So it's quite useful to think of a pandemic as a partial analogue for experience for climate change for the future. They both have global reach and require globally integrated responses. They propagate globally and the impacts 
compound globally and nationally and cascade right across our economy. They illuminate where the vulnerabilities are in our community and we've seen that and there's a couple of examples that um, I'm sure you're all aware of where different groups in society have been particularly vulnerable but we have very quickly found homes for them. The homeless is, is what I'm talking about. And in the economy, our tourism sector has very quickly identified the vulnerability in one of our largest income earners. Both of these examples illustrate vectors at work, to use a health analogy. On the one hand, exposed vulnerable people, and the other, our air transport and the interconnectedness between our vulnerable people and the way, way we do things and structure our economy. So for pandemics, we close the borders, but we can't do that for climate change, for the impacts of climate change, because the emissions that are already in the atmosphere have warmed it and have warmed our oceans. And the, the inertia in the system means that we are locked in to a significant amount of impacts yet to be felt. But we're already witnessing uh, global impacts in various places in the world and in New Zealand where some attribution can be given to climate change from our extreme events, for example. And also um, we're witnessing the inevitability of the climate change impacts. So this means that our responses will be different, but we can still learn from the pandemic. If all pandemics were partially prepared and we're certainly not prepared. We weren't prepared for the massive global hit that we've experienced and also experienced from the policy response to that, which was to close the borders. However, we fare a little better for climate change since we have benefited largely from the huge investment of time and effort of our research community into probably what is the most robust assessment system in the world for any issue through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's bigger than anything the world has ever seen. And that research base has informed what we do in New Zealand. And it has also informed the institutional arrangements that have been built up to limit emissions and to adapt to climate change. But what's coming down the track will require an enormously bigger ramp up of the um, institutional arrangements that we currently have. For instance, just an example recently in The Economist, the IEA has estimated that we've had roughly an 8% drop in carbon dioxide emissions for the 2020 year as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown around the world. And it's probably the largest annual drop in emissions since World War II. But the world still has to drop emissions by more than 90% of the necessary decarbonisation that's left to do. So that just gives you an idea of the scale with respect to the pandemic. It is very much larger. If we're having any show of meeting our Paris targets, particularly the ambitious one of 1.5 degrees warmer than since the Industrial Revolution. So our response to the pandemic cannot afford to embed further carbon into our economy. We've therefore got an opportunity which is unprecedented to put a line in the sand now for the spending for the COVID recovery to decarbonise our economy for the future and build back better, and in some cases somewhere else, than the exposed coasts on the, the floodplains and the drought-prone land and the fire-exposed land that we know will be a huge, enormous burden on future generations. 
and increasingly on this generation. So if we lose that opportunity for the sake of having a cup of tea and focusing our investments on avoiding the lock-in of emissions and um, maladaptation, we'll compound the effects of the pandemic and for the most vulnerable and for the economy as a whole. And I'll just give you one example. I'm looking out the window watching the ferry go out, right? We have an opportunity not to buy new ferries that have fossil fuels running them. We could easily have an electric ferry. We have one very close to where I live, which is about to be introduced to the market when we can get going. It's not too big a step to have big ferries going around the world that are electric for the sake of just waiting a little while until we can make that investment safely for the future. So we've reached the point where climate change needs to be our focus for our future investments. And this is for investments from in response to COVID. Investments that deliver climate benefits that don't lock in carbon emissions, land use decisions and investments in places that avoid the impacts of floods, fire, drought and sea level rise, funding instruments that can be leverage, leveraging these investments and that can be fairly distributed um, to everyone across New Zealand. A workforce that's prepared for tomorrow's jobs, and we've heard a little bit about that already from Carolyn, policies that support and leverage preparedness by reducing emissions and being able to adapt to climate change in the future. Change now that we can measure the economic success how we go about that. And I think the wellness framework is a very good place to start. So we need to be bold and we need to have some new thinking. And the climate change impacts will dwarf the, the impacts from pandemics for generations to come. And the bonus would be for making an, an wise and smart investments today that are climate resilient is that we may be better prepared for pandemics in the future. And preparation and the knowledge of what we know and we're able to learn on the way along and nimbly transform and flexibly transform the way we do things is going to be essential. Now, just a couple of examples to finish. We have proof already about how, as academics and researchers, we can focus on a problem in different ways globally to accelerate the development for a vaccine. We have groups all over the world, all interconnected, and we're part of that process as well. And we've seen that same focus occur with climate change, um, which has not been heeded in the way that we need to do to ramp up our, our impacts. And we're continuing to connect while not being able to meet face to face. So we can do this sort of discussion and continue with our innovation while sitting um, in our homes working. And we have some other advantages in New Zealand to pick up these um, opportunities. Having a unicameral government makes one enormous difference in the way we do things. We're small, we're highly interconnected. We have the Māori knowledge systems that take a long view, which we can learn from and help us focus on the future. We're innovative and we're experimenters and we have a clear sense of who we are and collaborative leadership matters. So these characteristics give us opportunities for changing the way we do things around here. Thank you, Alan. Well, thanks, Judy, but um, Carolyn just said that we don't have money. Uh, so she's talked about how our government debt's going to increase hugely, and of course the same's going to happen around the world. Isn't that going to slow down what actually um, can be done in terms of mitigation by governments around the world on climate change? I think there's two parts to that. One is that we have to leverage funding 
and we have to have instruments where we can do that. So that's one challenge that we face. And I think the other, um, the other challenge is that we can get double benefits from our investments now. We can rebuild quickly at the same time as reducing emissions and not locking in maladaptation. So I think those two things will help us make our money go further and collaborations also internationally through innovations, through electrification of the country will help us. And I think those will be the main things that I would say. But yes, it won't be easy, but we have to start thinking about, well, how do we spend our money anyway? And how do we put it to good effect? The money that we can garner um, to address this big problem. Well, actually, as an ex-Secretary of Treasury, I think we've been thinking about those things for quite a little while, Judy, but, but sure, in this context, Nick, um, you've heard these big challenges we've got here. How should we be thinking about the future? How can we? You teach this course called How to Study the Future. Has that got any relevance to thinking about this? I'm Kiora Koto, yeah, um, it certainly does. And uh, I guess I think I'd like to present some of the benefits of the kind of broad thinking that's part of my discipline that I think I can add to this. So sort of, you might seem I'm a bit of an odd figure here as a philosopher and sort of in a way, I don't know, within the university, sometimes people don't want to play with philosophers because we have a reputation for getting into arguments and loving arguments. Um, and I'm really keen to sort of, in a way, emphasize a different part of philosophy, which is stressing our imaginations. I mean, I'm really inspired by some of the things that Judy and Carolyn have said, especially the sort of the positive things, because I do think that if we, I know we get into habits, into patterns, and we tend to sort of have a limited sort of perspective on what's possible, and that's shaped by what we've experienced. Sort of say, well, I mean, it's always been this way, Someone says, you can dream about changing it, but it can't change, can it? And so I'm particularly sort of impressed by, I don't know, the interesting things that people have said to me about their experiences of level four. And you might think before going into level four, well, you're gonna spend a month basically locked up inside with very few shops open. That sounds like hell. But the thing that struck me is how many people have said to me, I'm, I'm missing level four. Can we just go back to level four? And so when you give people unexpected experiences, it's amazing how it broadens their imagination and gets them to realize something that they might've thought was impossible actually can be done. It wasn't so long ago that the very idea of a country with a chief executive who might have to take a break from an important policy decision to breastfeed a baby, impossible. I mean, you just can't have that. And then it happens and you say, oh, the world didn't end and it was fine. So it's amazing just doing things differently. Another example, I remember, you know, going out in the eighties, I am that old. You'd go to a pub and you'd come back and your clothes would stink of cigarette smoke. And that would be your experience. And the idea, well, gosh, I, could we have a pub without plumes of cigarette smoke. I mean, that would be impossible, right? I mean, you know, telling pubs that they could, you know, everyone's favorite two addictions, drinking and smoking, you can't do them together. Well, that would be the end. That's, that's, there's no more business model for pubs. It happens. And now the idea that you would go into a pub and light up a cigarette, it's like, I don't know, you may as well go out and pull out a machete. It's about the same thing. So. It's amazing how once these things happen, 
people get an expanded view of what's possible. So when I think about when people are looking out and saying, wow, the streets are so quiet. Um, I hear birdsong in central Wellington. That's interesting. That we in a way kind of have an expanded sense of what we can do to sort of in a way respond to some of the suggestions that Judy is making. So um, the main thing I think is that we tend to have this artificially narrow either or approach. You have a very, you know, it's either one thing or the other. We've got to have everything or nothing. You know, we've got to have rush hour in Wellington or level four. Those are our two choices. But in actual fact, once you've experienced level four and you've experienced the sort of the lower emissions, You've actually, I mean, you can't, I don't know, maybe we really could solve climate change if the whole world went permanently into level four. Maybe. I don't think we can do that. But we do have an option now to say, yes, let's bring back, of course, we need to have rush hour again. But can we bring it back at lower levels? Yes, definitely. I mean, gosh, I'm embarrassed to say as an academic philosopher, I'm going to declare this to everyone. My parents-in-law invited, took our family on a cruise in the Caribbean. And it was, for the record, I, mean, I hated it, but in actual fact, I really enjoyed it. But one of the things you notice about the Caribbean is it's just wall-to-wall -wall cruise ships. Now, of course, that's kind of all gone temporarily, and but it's an opportunity for us to say, wow, there was something a bit weird about all of these cruise ships and all of the emissions and all of that and there has to be a cruise industry but we have an opportunity to say do we have to bring it back at quite the same levels that we had before so i'm always interested when judy used the word mitigation and things like that i'm always interested for people to say yes oh we definitely need russia and wellington again we need yeah we need two of them every day but can we we could bring them back at lower levels and in a way, when you say that before, it seems kind of impossible, right? I mean, no, we can't do that. We're stuck with it. Well, we can. We have a sense now. I think, I hope we're empowered to think we can bring these things back at lower levels. So I, in a way, when you think about the imaginative, when people, I, I want to see a whole lot of really creative young minds thinking about ways to do that and ways that an old part like me, I won't think of, but... Um, hopefully, if you take that course, you will. Okay, so thank you. Well, so Nick, you and in fact, Judy and Carolyn have all talked about doing things differently and under different circumstances. Um, do crises like this give a political or popular agency to do harder stuff that we couldn't normally do? Uh, or are we sort of somehow expecting a flowering of views and, and initiatives to go on on their own? I, I think they really do give a popular agency because in a way the most lazy response to a request that we do something serious about climate change is just, we'd love to, but we just can't. Sorry, it's impossible. I mean, we couldn't do it. I mean, if we were to do something serious about climate change, we'd have to crash our economy. So I'm gonna go with the platitudes I, you know, I'm not going to deny the reality of climate change, but we really can't do anything because it's not possible. We can't send everyone into unemployment. So it's those kinds of, those are the kinds of debating tricks that people use. And I think in a way, when you have an expanded sense of what's possible, 
I guess it maybe gives greater weight to the Churchillian statement about never wasting a crisis. I mean, politicians think that way, but I hope when we're thinking ethically, we can think, wow, we had this weird experience with level four, everyone went home. And as a result of that, we thought slightly differently. But are we sure that um, having a greater sense of what's possible isn't a platitude in itself, Nick? Um, well, Caroline, you've heard of all the, okay. you, you've heard of this expanded range of possibilities that we might do. You're there concerned about public sector management and, and government budgets and so on. How does that sound to you? Well, one comment I would make in relation to that is when I was talking about some of those numbers in the budget, that sort of $62 billion of government expenditure responding and um, thinking about recovering from COVID, our, our sort of annual budget has been around about $3 billion of new expenditure a year. So this is a massive amount of new investment. So I think it does provide opportunities. Obviously, some of that was to do with the initial response and things like the wage subsidy and providing immediate support. But some of it is about longer term investment. And I think it gives us a choice about what form that investment takes. So for example, if you're thinking about infrastructure investment because you want to you know, respond to um, increasing unemployment and create jobs, we, you have choices there. You know, it can be through things like a new roads or it could be thinking about things like uh, you know, public transport that sort of has, can have lower emissions. So I think you know, the scale of investment um, needed and that the government has indicated in responding to COVID does provide opportunities to invest in a different way. Yeah, um, Carolyn, that's very close to one of the questions we've got coming in now from from the audience, um, saying in the longer term, New Zealand will face more crises like this, pandemics, earthquakes, etc. cetera. Uh, should the government be considering the incentive effects of bailing up businesses and households now? Um, and, and Judy, any thoughts about incentive effects um, that would relate to um, climate change mitigation and related actions? Um, in terms of, you know, what support the government may choose to provide to struggling businesses, I mean, we've already seen that, you know, in terms of support for Air New Zealand from the government. Um, so I think it, it will happen as to, you know, how you balance that against the incentives you set for the future. I mean, you need to think about things like, you know, how important particular businesses um, may be to the country, you know, what impacts that has for employment, um, you know, there's a wide range of factors that goes into those decisions. I mean, in response to past shocks we've had, uh, the GFC we saw in relation to some of the um, finance companies with the government se um, stepping in to a certain extent, you saw it in relation to Christchurch, in relation to uh, insurance companies. So um, it is part of the government thinking about a response to a, a shock or a disaster. But I think um, generally, there's a lot of factors that go into those decisions. So um, because of the, the risk that was highlighted by uh, the attendee, that if um, any business that's struggling or failing is supported by the government, that creates some really poor incentives going forward. But you do need to weigh up the, the other impacts of, of perhaps some of those businesses failing. Yeah, thanks, Judy. Yes, thanks, Alan. Um, I, th I think Incentives come in a number of different forms for the way we invest in the future. Some of them come from the, if you like, the institutional framework within which decisions are taken. 
and a little bit like Carolyn, I think some of those incentives could be seen as disincentives by some people, but are in fact incentives, like the, the regulatory framework, for example. And, and also the banks lending money, that if there was a, um, some sort of requirement that the carbon content of the investment was something that had to be kept at a low level or not at all, would help to shift finance into low carbon um, investments. And I think that's been gradually happening. I recall the current governor of the Reserve Bank making a statement about, you know, future risk of investment in, um, across the world and also particularly in New Zealand um, when he first took over his job. And it was very clear that there was a signal there that it's good for business, it's good for risk management to avoid putting investments into things that are not fit for the future. So there are banking, there are insurance, there are government um, regulatory frameworks, which can all together add up to giving an incentive to people. And I think the main thing is that having a common message, which is consistent and aligned across the way in which we um, design our statutory and regulatory frameworks, provides the certainty that business needs and investments need, investors need to be able to make these smart decisions. So I think it, it, it's about consistency, alignment, creating some sort of certainty in the environment that will help provide that leverage. Thanks. We've got a question coming in um, saying COVID response New Zealand has shown so far successfully the inclusion of science in policy decision making in contrast to past neglect of science and, for example, climate change and some other examples. What have we learned from this time around? Nick, um, should we be listening to society or listening to philosophers or actually should we be listening to technical experts on all of this? Well, we need to be listening to the right combination of those. I mean, I think it's been great, isn't it? These, the sort of the, the nature, the success story that we've told in New Zealand has been about politicians, policymakers, listening to scientists and sort of in a way taking, not just, I don't know, using really, you know, the, basically sort of using the, the latest sort of social media sort of thing, chemtrails or whatever, to sort of quash the message from science. So if we could actually, wouldn't it be great if in a way the success story that we currently have had been largely about or significantly about politicians listening to scientists and and succeeding by doing that. That would be a wonderful little narrative that we could make rather than just, wow, among all the inconvenient people that I don't want to listen to, scientists are number one. So give me a reason to ignore them. I mean, I hope that this, could, this can be part of our response. So of course, this has been one of those events that we didn't know very much about at the beginning. I mean, sure we've had SARS and MERS and so on, but this has happened in a different sort of way. We've had to learn about the epidemiology and we're certainly learning about the economics of it as well. Um, any thoughts about how we should be learning about these events sequentially as time goes on and um, when we need to make important decisions, not necessarily all upfront, but when we know actually what we're dealing with? Well, I quite like this aspect. One of the things I love about science and the scientific view is basically the, the idea that sort of, well, 
That's not the scientific sort of view, isn't it? In all things considered, sort of all time for all time truth. I mean, it's in a way, you know, the, the scientists don't operate that way, and scientists make state are often upfront about, well, you know, this is what we believe, this is what it's rational to say now, but the next experiment could change that. So, you know, this is how you should know. And we've seen many fluctuations in advice. You know, should we all be wearing masks? Yes, no, blah, blah, blah. That's changed, but it's changed for the right reason because it's changed because people have been sensitive to the, the information that's come in. And fresh evidence has led people to change their advice. And if we had more of that built into us, then that would be great. I mean, in a way that we're always gathering new information and we need policymakers who are sort of sensitive to that information. So Judy, you're a scientist. Does that sound like Nick's talking scientifically or not? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's what it's about. We work off building from the previous paper and making the advances from where we're going. Um, I think yesterday I sat in on the, um, what's commonly called the Bushfire uh, Royal Commission. And it was, it was an incredible discussion of two lawyers and a, um, a military man who chairs it, um, asking questions about, which were essentially about science and the role of science in dealing with risk. And I commend it to people participating in this discussion to go and have a look at it because they were very clearly explaining how science is, builds off new information the whole time. And um, this is what we know now. This is what our graphs show. And the importance of, of science in that discussion and trying to get to the root of information that was available or wasn't available at the time and decisions had to be taken. And so what I've witnessed over the last 30, 40 years is a ramping up of science in informing of policy. And we've seen chief scientists being employed all around the government, for example, um, within their departments, plus a chief scientist. And, and that person having the independence to be able to bring new information to the table. So I think, to me, COVID really brought that home, that there was the Prime Minister and the Chief Scientist for Health working together to come up with something that would work for New Zealand. And I would hope that that could be bedded in as we go forward and learn new information, but also in dealing with climate change as well. Look, we've got a question on um, database and tracing systems, and that has been something that's really changed over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what do you think we've learned about uh, databases, tracing systems, government control of them, uh, and so on? What, what lessons will we take out of that for our future? Um, shall I comment sure. on that? Yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, some of the challenges um, with contact tracing, you know, in terms of they had an in, a independent review of that showed some of the weaknesses um, in our government systems and the health system in this case, as I sort of made in, in my introductory comments, what I'm hopeful for is that um, the steps they have moved to improve that as part of the COVID response, we can embed into the health system more broadly, but then you do have to um, you know, balance that against questions of the ownership of people's information and um, you know, we've had a sort of growing 
use of um, data and uh, information informing policy decisions, but you have to weigh that up against, um, you know, some of those privacy issues and how we manage that. But, you know, if we're going to be able to respond to these types of challenges in the future, having a sort of paper-based system that's not connected across the country isn't really, you know, um, meaning we're very well placed. So I do hope it, you know, we do actually have big improvements in that space. Thanks. Other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, we are, I, I do feel quite surveilled right now. My movements are traced every time I go to the university. It's clear every room I've been in. I mean, in a way, this kind of surveillance, surveillance to basically prevent the spread of a terrible disease in New Zealand is fine with me. And it's sort of in a way, it would be, wouldn't it be great if we could sort of in a way be more relaxed about this kind of surveillance and still maybe pissed off that um, you know, Facebook is surveilling us to make us buy stuff we don't want. I mean, that's its use of surveillance. So I'd like, would it be great if we could actually support a scientifically informed government and with, uh, with inter its interest in knowing where we are and what we're doing, not to sell us stuff we don't want. Judy, it's not, it's not just surveillance of people. I mean, surveillance of systems as well. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think that if we can translate those learnings about how we set up data and systems to um, have us more prepared, I think the pandemic analogue value for climate change is profound, really. And I think we've got a lot to learn from being caught short. And it's the mistakes we make that we learn from that enable us to build systems that are more robust. And while I share your view, Nick, um, that we do have to balance this up and, and Carolyn um, with, with um, privacy issues. I think at the end of the day, if we can use data systems for good rather than for bad, we're heading in the right direction. So um, having some protections in there for misuse is, goes without saying and has to be done, but we do desperately need data connected and having it you know, just in the health system or having a system that cannot talk to another system needs to be addressed across climate change issues as well. And the availability of that data, which is all over the paddock, it's everywhere. And bringing it together in a form that you can actually use is a really high priority. And this was another matter that came out of the Bushfire Royal Commission yesterday. They talked a bit about this, that they didn't have the data that they needed because the local councils didn't want to give it because it was going to have impacts on the value of the land. Well, I'd rather know what the impacts were before I bought a property. I mean, one has to do one's due diligence to have it behind the scenes and you can't get it available, um, access it. Just seems to me to be um, counterproductive to moving forward on this issue because we will have to deal with it. Yeah, thank you. Well, look, we're, we're moving towards the end of our hour. Uh, I wanted to ask a final thought from all of you. Uh, the, what most of the forecasts have been, uh, both the COVID and the economic forecasts, as reflected in what Carolyn talked about, were really for a V-shaped recovery. They say we're at the worst point now from the economic point of view. We were at the worst point, at least in most developed countries, a couple of weeks ago from an epidemiological point of view, and we will bounce back. And most of the economic forecasts um, for both international and New Zealand government's ones are very much about V-shaped recovery. That's quite strong recovery. Uh, probably won't feel like that, but
but they're talking about a trough in the economy and about now and then quite a strong response pick up over the next year. Uh, however, there's a prospect that this could get worse, not better. So what about if it's not a V-shaped recovery? What about if it's a U-shaped recovery and it takes a lot longer to happen? And so some of the businesses and jobs that we think have been distressed temporarily are actually distressed longer term. Well, what about if it's a W-shaped recovery and there's another wave of COVID comes and hits us all and we all go into lockdown again and we go through it again? Or what about if it's an L-shaped recovery and we get a bit of recovery, but at much lower growth rates, we just don't go back to where we were before at all. Does that change any of the things you've been talking about today? If it's a much slower recovery like that? Carolyn, do you want to start? Um, well, obviously, the longer or deeper the impact of COVID, the bigger those impacts on government and on individuals and businesses. And, you know, that's not just in a sort of financial sense, that's the social impacts, um, the educational impacts, the health impacts that flow from those, you know, so that would you know, obviously be a bigger concern. And I think one thing that's important in thinking about responding to, you know, as the impact of COVID unfolds and, and depending on how the economy recovers is making sure we've got that broad conversation going on. So we're not just, you know, while it's obviously important, we're not just focused on the financial um, side of things that we are looking at those other factors, you know, as a policy advisor giving advice that we're thinking about those other things and, and the types of responses that are made that we are taking that into account in our advice. Um, so that's why I would say. Thanks. Nick, what about if this is really a lot longer and a lot deeper and a lot worse and a lot more damaging than any of us have been talking about? Well, I do think in terms of getting one of the features of that course you talked about is this idea of imagination insurance, using our imagination to sort of think about, well, what if those what ifs, if they don't come to pass, then it's a bit like travel insurance, isn't it? You get insurance against having a serious accident while you're on holiday and you don't you don't want to use it, but it's always better to have imagination insurance for these things. So I hope, just looking even beyond sort of W-shaped models, I don't know, the big, the next big shock in 10 years' time for New Zealand maybe has nothing to do with the viral pandemics. Maybe it's something completely different. But that's why I really love the story that emphasises what we've done for each other as New Zealanders. And so that in a way, that's a way to build the resources in the future, to respond to a, a shock. When they, oh gosh, we didn't expect that, but that's got nothing to do with viral pandemics, but it's another collective shock that we couldn't have predicted. So that's even looking slightly further. Well, I guess those of us who've, who've had to do business continuity planning, um, I mean, you do have to try and identify your shock to some extent. Uh, when I was running Treasury, our worst shock we could imagine was a bad foot and mouth disease outbreak, which would, could really change the face of a lot of uh, economic activity. Um, that hasn't happened. Uh, this is a different version of an of a epidemic running through at the minute. Um, yeah, uh, Judy, um, what are your, think, your thinking if this was deeper, longer, darker than we've been talking about? Well, where my head goes is that we have to be prepared. We have to put in place systems that enable us to adapt, 
be flexible, be nimble, be able to change pathway. And I really like this imagination insurance. I think that looking at the possible scenarios that the future might look like and really working through and understanding them and looking at, well, if we did this, what, where would we go next? If we had the flexibility to change, what things do we need to have in place that can support a change of direction if something comes along? Now, I, I've just put a caution in there because with climate change, we know it's coming along, but yet we're not really prepared. So if we built that climate lens, if you like, into the way we plan for the future or think about the future, that could help create some thinking and decision-making that could create the resilience that we need for the things we don't know about that are going to come along. But without doing that exercise, we're all flying in the dark. And I think that building that community and community support and understanding that the future is uncertain, but that we do have the means to think about that problem and make choices along the way, as long as we keep our connectivity, understand how we're linked to the rest of the world and how we might make decisions and make choices along the way. Because as you said at the beginning, Alan, it's not black and white. These are not binary choices. We have choices in the future. And I think this imaginary idea is where we need to think and go forward with. Okay, um, Nick, where do we go to get a um, imagination insurance policy. Who's going to write a policy for us? Well, um, it's interesting you should say that. Um, I, the recent sort of graduates from my course could do a very good job of that. So they are, I can give you some of their names. Um, I mean, it's interesting that I, I think science fiction may sound a bit sort of mad, but I mean, in a way, when science fiction, so when, when they, they talk about pandemics, they, I mean, typically in science fiction pandemics, the next stage is you get COVID and then you turn into a zombie, which thankfully didn't happen. But it's almost like, if you're that, what was that? It's, I mean, whenever you're thinking about that, you're maybe thinking, oh, if that did happen or something like that, what would we do? So actually, Judy's point is great. I love the way you put it. Wouldn't it have been good if in the 1960s, when climate change was just a crazy, well, you know, people were talking about it, but you know, I mean, you know, the world could get warmer, it could get cooler at that point. If more people had sat down and said, well, if it really did get warmer, what would we do? I mean, you know, probably it won't happen because it's the 1960s, but what would we do? We didn't think that way. Okay, well, thank you very much. You've all stretched, you've stretched our imagination and our knowledge as well. We're, and as we all try and fight the how not to become a zombie phase, keep watching this, these webinars, uh, we'll have one more webinar. It's a bonus one called The Future of Stuff. It's going to come up in two weeks' time, and we'll pick up on some of these points there as well. Thanks, everyone, and we hope we'll see you again in two weeks' time at the next one. Thanks very much. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.